Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a good weekend, at least a better weekend than the Bears, Jim, but uh, we kind of knew that was coming. Brought to you today by Gabby, uh, gabby.com slash martini. We actually have two good martinis today, two goods and uh, what we'd probably classify as a crazy. So, Jim, as we said on Friday, the expectations were kept, uh, I think, realistically and painfully low. And uh, the Bears lived up to them, although they kept it closer than I expected for most of the game. So uh, now they have the fun uh, task of deciding whether they still plan to fire and release people that they would have a few weeks ago before they got on their little tiny winning streak. So good times in Chicago. (laughs) You know, listeners to this podcast will probably notice a strange pattern in which we are both technically fans of our teams. (laughs) Technically. But we've been hard, our heart ripped out of our chest, you know, still beating like in the, the, the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We've seen our teams throw our hearts upon the ground, spiking it like the football that they do not spike because they do not score enough touchdowns. And we have seen them stomp on it over and over again the way they refuse to do against opposing offenses. Um, so there's really not that much hope. And uh, we have no more dreams to be crushed. Uh, you had the appropriate level of expectations for the first seventh seed in the NFL playoffs in, in history. And I know it's going to shock people. It turns out when you are the last team to qualify, that, that lowest ranked one, your odds are not great. Yeah, not good. You're playing uh, one of the best teams in the first round, and uh, you probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, if you're being honest. But, you know, the NFL wanted to make things a little more interesting with uh, everything going on with COVID. So uh, we'll see next week. Uh, You're going to have Brady versus Breeze. And uh, I believe uh, in both conferences, the wildcard teams won more than the division winners. So that ought to tell you something. But all right, let's get... By the way, the other oddity is that both teams that lost to the Jets won this weekend. (laughs) That'd be Cleveland and... weird? I'm I'm really rooting for a Rams-Brown Super Bowl. (laughs) Oh, the Rams, that's right. (laughs) Because then you can say you're better than the Super Bowl champs. I get that. Whoever it is, we beat the Super Bowl winners. That's right. That's right. So you're the real champs at that point. There you go. All right. It's the transitive property of equality. It's one of the few things mm. I remember from like algebra or geometry or whatever that was. Uh, all right, on to our first good martini, Jim. And our first good martini is simply Capitol Hill police officer Eugene Goodman. In the wake of the riots on Capitol Hill from Wednesday, we got a ton of different uh, video on social media and elsewhere, some of it very disturbing, including a Capitol Hill police officer being crushed against a door, another one being dragged down the steps and beaten with a flagpole. It's just utterly disgusting. Uh, But then there was another one that initially got a lot of criticism. You had people in the building uh, facing a Capitol Hill police officer who then retreated, uh, checked uh, where he was uh, looking in a couple different directions, and then uh, retreated up the stairs and the crowd followed. And a lot of people on on social media were like, look at this guy. He's not even confronting him. He's just kind of giving him the guided tour of the Capitol. Well, there are people who actually understand the layout of the Capitol, and one of those glances was towards the door of the Senate chamber, which was not guarded at that time. And so he took the gamble of trying to lead the demonstrators out of that area, up to another floor, and away from harming lawmakers in the U.S. Senate. And the gamble, of course, was that these people didn't know where the Senate was, a gamble that turned out to be right, 
Uh, and if they had known, things could have gotten a whole lot worse. But the quick thinking, the uh, training perhaps of Officer Goodman, uh, glad that that's being clarified now. And he is a true hero from that day. Yeah, it's very odd that you watch a video and it just feels like you can see the thoughts or immediately hear the thoughts going through each figure's head. But the officer, officer Goodman, like he, he turns and he's looking towards the Senate and you can see the doorway at the end of the hall. And most of us who aren't familiar enough with the Senate layout and, and which hallway looks like what might not recognize, you know, I didn't immediately recognize that that's where the, you know, after that you're on this floor of the Senate. And he leads the mob away. And if he had not been that quick thinking, he could have radioed for backup. He could have shouted and screamed to warn people. He managed to do it in the way that minimized the risk to the, uh, the lawmakers inside the Senate chamber. Greg, we are lucky that Wednesday wasn't worse than it was. And I kind of wonder if the reason people, I mean, it was, it was terrible enough as is. Four protesters dead, one officer dead, another officer uh, apparently took his own life this weekend in a response to uh, the events of the past week. That's pretty terrible. And yet you hear about the reports of the Molotov cocktails that were found, the two pipe bombs that were found at the uh, Republican National Headquarters and Democratic National Headquarters. The reports, some people in the crowd were armed. Uh, the sheer number of ways in which this could have gone from as bad as it was to much, much worse. And this, you know, the actions of Officer Goodman were one of the things that prevented this from being even worse than it was. We still have an issue of what's going to happen uh, on Inauguration Day. The entire Capitol complex now has this high fence around it. I remember there being fences in the past for pressed uh, inaugurations, but apparently someone who was one of my colleagues who was down on Capitol Hill earlier today said it looks like a war zone. You just got you know guys in, in body armor uniforms uh, all around. Um, I don't know what's going to happen on Inauguration Day. Hopefully nothing. Nothing beyond the ordinary, you know, uh, swearing in of Joe Biden and life goes on and we don't have to worry about this anymore. My fear is that because this wasn't as bad as it could be, some people are kind of downplaying or not quite recognizing the danger that still exists because apparently some of the yahoos who participated in this are saying, hey, we're going to come back on Inauguration Day. Uh, we will see how this all shakes out, Greg. But for this moment, we can be very thankful for Officer Goodman, a well-named figure if there ever was one. And, uh, you know, hope for the best in the uh, days and weeks to come. Exactly. We're also seeing quite a bit of progress on the facial recognition of a lot of the folks who were in the Capitol. A number of arrests have already been made. I'm sure more will be coming. The FBI and others are asking for public participation. Uh, we are not in the whataboutism game uh, for the most part uh, when it comes to this story. But it's good to know that law enforcement can use that. Uh, I don't know how aggressive they were about that in the riots over the summer. But uh, be warned, crazy people, uh, that uh, that technology is there and uh, all likelihood you will be discovered for what you're doing. Greg, can I just add, yeah. I do find it very uh, lucky for us that the vast majority of the participants in the event, the you know protests that turned into a riot on Capitol Hill are apparently virus skeptics and chose not to wear masks. Yeah, that definitely helped law enforcement, didn't it? Yeah. So one more reason to wear a mask, people. <laughs> Facial recognition software is everywhere out there. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, some more good news. We've got lots of good news today, amazingly. Uh, and that's how to save money on your car insurance and your homeowner's insurance, because we're all looking for ways to save money. And 
if you'd like to keep an extra, on average, $961 a year in your pocket, I would imagine you'd take it, right? And that's how much Gabby customers save per year on their car and homeowner's insurance. And that's why when you're shopping for insurance, you really want to use Gabby. You know, this is the time of year we go shopping for insurance. Well, Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. We're talking about companies like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers. You just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. Now, like Greg mentioned earlier, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. I'll bet that'd be nice to have in your pocket every year. And if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so that you can relax knowing that you have the best rate out there. And they will never sell your information, so there'll be no more annoying spam or robocalls. And it really couldn't be easier. You just go to the site, gabby.com slash martini, and they'll lead you through all the prompts, uh, where you live, your your age, and that sort of thing. There's about 10 different prompts, and the last thing is to connect to your current insurance policy so they know what coverage you currently have and what other insurance companies can offer you as uh, a premium rate in response for that coverage. And then it's right there, full page, uh, in just a, a, a couple of seconds. And so you're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. You can see how much Gabby can save you in just a minute or two. It's totally free to check and there's no obligation. So go to Gabby.com slash martini, G-A-B-I dot com slash martini, Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about our second good martini. And if 2021 wasn't off to a crazy enough start. How would you like to toss in a California recall election? No, we're not there yet, and I'm not sure what exactly the threshold is for signatures on this. But anyone who remembers 2003 knows uh, it's going to add a whole lot of crazy to the mix if we get to that point. But there is a very active uh, recall campaign aimed at California Governor Gavin Newsom for a variety of reasons. Uh, The lockdown, uh, his, uh, of course, hypocritical trip to the French Laundry, racking up a $22,000 bill with no social distancing, no masks and all that stuff. So definitely hypocritical on that. Uh, The vaccine rollout has now been a complete disaster there, as it has been in New York as well. In fact, Politico leads their story on Gavin Newsom this way. California is running so low on oxygen that officials are telling emergency crews to conserve supplies. Good luck telling that to the patient. Ambulances in Los Angeles are backed up outside emergency rooms, sometimes for hours. And the coronavirus vaccine distribution remains so disjointed that a freezer failure that forced immediate inoculations of hundreds of people in Northern California, inmates, older people, and some people on the street, was hailed as an improvement. Californians are frustrated, tired, and sick. And in the midst of the unfolding catastrophe, Governor Gavin Newsom, confronting a burgeoning recall effort on top of a year of wildfires and civil unrest, is under siege. And also not a good sign for uh, Governor Newsom, Jim, is that the first person they quote defending him, Gray Davis, who was the California governor recalled in 2003. Now, the big difference, of course, between 2021 and 2003 is that it's a much bluer state. It was already a blue state then, but it's much bluer now. So I'd be surprised if Newsom did not survive the recall, but uh, he's got a pretty horrendous record. And the fact that this is becoming a pretty popular recall effort, and I'm not sure it's just on the right, uh, shows that even people in California are paying attention to their politics. Yeah, you know, we, we said this is a good martini. I, I The Politico article really is worth reading. Uh, sometimes it's tough to get a good uh, handle on things 
from the East Coast and, and California, as much as you might say, ah, you know, it's it's crazy. It's always been a land of nuts and all that stuff. Um, you know, California does in part shape the course for the rest of the country. Political ideas that are popular in California very quickly spread to other states. The whole thing is enjoyable, but I just want two parts of this article I want to spotlight. Because you're right, it does, you know, Gray Davis is one of the first uh, uh, folks they quote, and his observation like, wow, he's got a lot of crises on his plate. The, there's a quote from Gary South, who is a Democratic strategist who uh, advised Newsom's 2010 campaign, was a senior advisor to Davis, says, quote, I don't think Californians can understand why we have hundreds of thousands of doses sitting there and they're not being administered. California has been through nearly 10 months of hell, and now there's potentially a light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines, but it doesn't do anybody any good if they're not administered. You've got to get these vaccinations in people's arms, unquote. Now, that's not, um, uh, you know, that's not a traditional political argument. Like, we can argue, we can argue ta- California's taxes are too high. I think there's a lot of people who'd argue California taxes are too high. But it's not that. It's not abortion. It's not environmental regulations. We can argue about all those things. But, like, Hey, you've got a it's it's basic competence of government. It's basically the government has certain duties and you're failing to execute those duties. Like th- those are big broad bipartisan concerns. And the other point in that article that I think is really worth noticing is that um if you're a democrat for the past at least 4 years, really more 5, maybe even you know close to 6 years, you've had a very easy applause line every time you're in front of a crowd of democrats and that is Donald Trump stinks. Donald Trump is the worst. You, you can, you know, and particularly amongst California Democrats, I am sure. Remember earlier, CalExit, right? The talk that California was going to have such severe divisions with the Trump administration that at some point it would lead to secession and all that. Um, if you're a Democrat like uh, Gavin Newsom, you don't have that applause line. You know, Donald Trump's going to leave the stage on January 20th. And yeah, you know, you'll probably still see some rabble rousing and still, you know, see Democrats invoking him. But He's not the problem anymore starting January 20th. Starting January 20th, you can't blame the Trump administration. Starting January 21st, it's, you know, you've got allegedly a friendly administration in place and you can't, you know, it's the same way that uh, Arab states use Israel as the perennial scapegoat. Democratic governors will no longer be able to use the Trump administration as the perennial scapegoat. And by the time the middle of the year comes, by the time the end of the year comes, this could be a very different political environment that Gavin Newsom won't be able to say, well, look at me, I'm your governor standing up against the big bad president. I'm the good guy. That, that's a very soft standard to be judged against. And my sneaking suspicion is that reality is going to start getting set in for these Democratic governors. And, you know, just as, you know, uh, being not Trump may have been sufficient for Biden, and we'll see if it's sufficient in the year, you know, in the months and years to come. Being opposed to Trump won't be enough for the Gavin Newsom's of the world. And I think there's a part of me that says I can't wait for that day to get here because they've been using it as an excuse and using it as a crutch for far too long. Jim, I hope that's right. But I do have a memory of Barack Obama well into his eight years as president talking about how problems were really George W. Bush's fault. We inherited a trillion dollar deficit and a crippling economy, which was true. But uh, as the slowest recovery in economic history, at least in modern times, uh, unfolded, I believe uh, Bush was invoked quite a bit. So so we'll see. I mean, when politicians... Oh, he can invoke it. Especially <laughs> whether people believe it. Well, that's true. So yeah, I mean, uh, whether, the, whether the public keeps going with that, I don't know. But uh, it won't be for a lack of trying, I have a feeling. Mm. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's go on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And today, this timetable is quite odd. As Nancy Pelosi, I think today starts the 24-hour ultimatum for Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment against President Trump. He's already said he's not going to do that, which means uh, starting tomorrow, I guess, or maybe later today. I don't know. The House is planning to introduce and then debate and I assume vote and probably approve since the Democrats control the chamber on articles of impeachment again against President Trump. But of course, removal would require conviction in the Senate, two-thirds of the U.S. Senate. But, uh, Jim, according to uh, Mitch McConnell, the timetable here uh, leaves much to be desired for House Democrats. The Senate is currently in recess until January 19th. And impeachment trial proceedings cannot begin before then unless all 100 senators consent to an early return. So, Jim, opening statements the day before the end of the administration uh, takes a lot of the... uh, energy out of this, if there was a lot of energy in the first place. I know a lot of people are saying, well, it's still worth doing because if he's convicted, then uh, then he can't run in 2024 and so forth. But uh, what do you make of uh, all of this happening literally now less than 10 days before the end of this administration? You know, Greg, I'm reminded of the legendary lawman, Lieutenant Frank Drebin, <laughs> who pledged to Mrs. Nordberg that no man would rest until the man who did this to your husband will be brought to justice. Come on, Frank, let's get a bite to eat. Um, because I, I shocked, well, I'm going to say I shocked. Some readers were very surprised. Some were not surprised. Some were supportive. Some were uh, loudly unhappy when I said on Thursday, yeah, this deserves impeachment. It's time to remove President Trump. He's He cannot exercise power responsibly at every opportunity. He throws gasoline onto the fire. But a core point of this, like, no, this is this is serious. This is uh, enough of a threat to our established republic that you can't leave him in office he could do something worse between now and when he formally leaves office at noon on January 20th. Greg, it's a really weird state of things when I want Congress to act faster than Nancy Pelosi does in terms of removing the president. The House was not in session this weekend. Apparently, Trump is a serious threat who must be removed from office. But, uh, Greg, it's not enough to work weekends. You know, um, That's, you know, the, the House is in pro forma session for, I think, until uh, inauguration day. And as you noted, you know, the, the uh, Senate is adjourned. Now, the Senate could come, you know, the guys can come back anytime they want to call it. But you'd kind of figure that if this is important enough to remove a president from office, then you'd want to do it as quickly as possible, that you would not want to uh, be leisurely about it. As you observe, yes, you can, if he is impeached after he leaves office, obviously Trump can't be removed from office. He can be convicted of the charges against him. Uh, and they could, but my understanding is that they'd have to separately vote on barring him from any public office. And for those of you who are saying, Jim, no, wait a minute, wouldn't impeachment automatically do it? Think of the case of Alcee Hastings, who was a judge who was impeached on eight counts by Congress back in 1989 and then elected to Congress by 1992. So way to go constituents in that district. I think Trump should be barred from running for office again. I do think, however, that if this is important enough to do, it's important enough to do promptly. I don't understand this idea of waiting on it. I 
uh, clearly it's not that in, uh, urgent if it can be postponed. And probably the most nonsensical thing I've heard is comes from uh, House Majority Whip James Clyburn, who said that he believes that the House could impeach but not send over the articles until after Joe Biden's first 100 days. Yes, the Senate trial of Trump would not get going until March 2021. Greg, this is the equivalent of taking something that you, you think is good, putting it in Tupperware and putting it in the back of the fridge, behind the mayonnaise, <laughs> behind everything else you've got in there, and pledging to get to, get to eat to it eventually. Now, of course, we know what happens, and most of the time it spoils. Uh, there's there's really no sense that by you know by May other things will be happening. There's never going to be a good time where there's not other work to be done. I'm sure Joe Biden wants to go to office with you know uh, an era of good feelings and a return to normalcy, and he wants to focus on his cabinet. And he wants to focus on the legislation, but things change Wednesday. It's a different world, you know. And so one of those things where like oh we can just act like things are normal. No, we can't. This is a very abnormal moment. And the fact that Democrats are apparently comfortable with pushing this off for months says to me that actually, if if you're going to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it, then don't do it. But don't dilly-dally. You don't sit around and think as maybe we'll get to it eventually. You know, that is a nonsensical position and it's deeply frustrating. Um, My sneaking suspicion is people can't seem to put aside the partisan politics at any point and uh, they've managed to put themselves in a situation where even probably in my mind, the clearest, most coherent slam dunk argument for the removal of a president ever. And Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn and the Democrats are going to fumble this, which I think, you know, as depressing as it is to me, it should be Democrats should be tearing their hair out. The, the ones who still have hair. They really love this holding on to the articles of impeachment thing. Nancy Pelosi tried yeah. that the last time, too. Not sure it's quite the leverage she thinks it is. It's not like momentum suddenly bursts up. You know, you, you know, like I, I think if you were ever going to get Republicans on board with an idea like this, you'd want this to be done as close to Wednesday as possible. That's when the memories are freshest. That's when uh, the outrage, you know, over time, outrage dissipates. It's just kind of like a law of political thermodynamics is, is, or, or something like that. And it uh, is absolutely baffling. Um, but I guess, you know, the imaginations of, of Pelosi and Biden are that they just can't see uh, some, moving this quickly on something like this. And thus it will wait. And my suspicion is that because it will wait, it will fail. I don't think they get to the two thirds in the Senate. They could, I guess. But uh, they'll certainly have more yes votes if it gets that far uh, than, than last time. But uh, they got a lot of Republicans saying now that's not the way to unify in the wake of something like this. So uh, so we'll see what the numbers are. I haven't seen any hard numbers one way or the other. But uh, anyway, it's January 11th. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Also, remember our great sponsor over at Gabby, gabby.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, we love your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Very grateful for those. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great Monday, and we'll see you Tuesday on the next Three Martini Lunch.